Hi guys, and thanks for joining us for episode number 33 of the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. You're joined by your hosts, Tierra and Jack, and today we have a very exciting Q&A to get started on. Yeah, so Jack and I put out a poll on our Instagrams as usual, and we received a lot of questions this week, and we just want to say thank you so much to everyone who asked a question. Because we have so many, and we probably want to keep this podcast to about an hour, what we have decided to do is we're going to try to answer about half of the questions today, and then next week in our next podcast, we're going to aim to answer the second half of the questions. So really sorry if we don't get to your question on this episode, but we will get to it in future. All right, so I guess we should just jump right in. So Jack, what is the first question of the day? So this question is by Corinne, and it is, what are your thoughts on anti-diet culture? That's quite a controversial question. <laughs> what are your thoughts on anti-diet culture, Tierra? All right, so man, when it comes to anti-dieting, I I just I'm not I'm not the biggest advocate of that because I I certainly wouldn't say that Jack and I are anti-diet dietitians. For Jack, Jesus, we have the word diet in our credentials. If we didn't believe in diets, we'd just be issues and I don't think that <laughs> I don't think that we went to university for four and a half years just to be issues. All right, so I think that when people see anti-diet on social media, what people are really trying to preach is anti-fad diet. Now, Jack, how would you describe a fad diet? What's a fad diet? I would say it's basically an unsustainable dieting practice that cuts out either one or more food groups. Yeah, and it's very usually very, very short term, isn't it? Mm. And it's just downright absurd. Yeah, I yeah. think unsustainable is probably the key word there. Yeah. So Jack and I are certainly anti-fad diet dietitians. However, I've never met someone who is pro-fad diet other than maybe, you know, someone who like a girl trying to promote skinny tea or something like that on Instagram. But yeah, we're certainly not anti-diet dietitians. And we went to university for four and a half years so that we could teach people sustainable and educational ways to diet like that's that's what we've been taught and i'm not just gonna throw that out the window and i also think that you know people can't be scared of words we can't be scared of the word diet we just have to accept it for what it is and i really don't think that someone can be an anti-diet dietitian because you know the matter of the fact is the majority of the population is overweight or obese and a lot of people do need to commence new dietary practices that are more sustainable that are going to help them lose weight because if you get a client come to you who you know has cardiovascular disease and fatty liver and they have central abdominal obesity okay and their health is at risk and they need to lose weight you can't be scared of putting them on a diet. <laughs> All right, but just remind yourself that you are educated at a tertiary level and you have been taught how to go about dieting someone and teaching them new lifestyle practices so that they can lose that weight in a very healthy and sustainable manner. And really, sometimes their health is just on the line. And you know, like try to think about someone else in another health profession like 
an engineer, okay? You couldn't be an anti-engine engineer. Even if, you know, there's some engines out there that run on fossil fuels and they're not good for the environment, you know, you can't just blanket coat it and say, no, I'm anti-engine, you know? Why don't you put your energy and your passion and your education into creating an engine that runs off electricity powered by solar panels, you know? So try to think of it in a different way, but I'd certainly say that Jack and I aren't anti-diet. We are pro-sustainable, healthy, lifestyle change dieters. <laughs> mm, and especially when you look at a lot of our clients are uh, competition prep clients and they're on a diet for sometimes as much as half a year. and. They some comp prep clients have to lose up to 30 kilos. So like I definitely wouldn't say we're anti-diet, but my take on it as well is that pretty much any individual is on a diet. It's just what what comprises the food groups that you eat and what do you eat on a daily basis. It's part of your diet. And I like Tierra said, it's a bit unrealistic to think that some people who do have a health risk because they are overweight or obese for them not to change their diet and go on a diet because ultimately manipulating your diet will be changing your diet. So there's more than one way to look at it. And I think in social media, there is an element of attention seeking from being anti-diet as well. That's probably a bit of controversial opinion, but... I think what they're, they say anti-diet, but they're really anti-fad diet, but they just need to make that a bit more clear. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, diet ain't a bad word <laughs> and we ain't issues. <laughs> All right, Jack, so what's the next question? So we have two questions which are related. One from Kate, which asks, do you think it is essential to track nutrition when training? Are there negatives in doing so or in not doing so? And Kyle asks, off-season, one meal a week, untracked, thoughts, opinions, discuss. All right, so I'm going to let you start. What do you think? So, yeah, it depends on the individual, of course, that's pretty much the answer to all of our questions. But essentially, what are your goals? What do you want to get out of training? Are you uh, aiming to be very competitive? What sort of style is your training? All that sort of stuff. So we're going to assume that you are, because we both know these people, they're pretty competitive people. And um, they train with the intention of competing as well, but also because they enjoy it. So in saying that, I would say that you definitely can make the great improvements from not tracking your nutrition because if you have a good knowledge of nutrition and what you need to eat on a daily basis what food groups they are are you prioritizing carbohydrates and protein etc um, you can definitely still make great progress but in order to optimize it then i probably would still recommend tr uh, tracking yeah so i guess what you're saying there is that if you're pretty damn well educated you can take more of an intuitive approach to eating rather than tracking everything meticulously down to the gram in my fitness pal while you're training yeah yeah i would completely agree with that but i would also agree with you know how much of how much does this really really matter to you and how much are you trying to absolutely maximize your progress because i know kate like you know this last season season she was an overall bikini champion and if you are at that level, you know, and this matters to you that much and you want to be that high caliber, I think that you really do need to be tracking both quite meticulously if your goals are that high and if you are on that type of level. But again, it, it really will depend. But I think that if you want to be your absolute best and maximize your potential, 
then nutrition and training go hand in hand. You know, you need a balance there and both really, really matter. And if you are at a high level, paying attention to things like nutrient timing and protein feedings and making sure you definitely are getting enough protein in throughout the day and you are reaching your carbohydrate goals and uh, you're keeping fat, you know, at, at an adequate level and not fully exceeding your fat and going really, really low carb some days and, you know, just nutrition's kind of a little bit all over the place, I think you really would maximize your potential if you pay very close attention to both. But at the same time, if you do just cover your bases and you are training with intensity and that satisfies you and that's okay with you, then of course that is perfectly fine. Yeah, and in terms of one untracked meal a week, you got to think about the whole week For example, if you eat four meals a day for seven days, that's 28 meals. So if you eat one meal untracked, then that can make a big difference if it's a very, very big meal and you go all in. But it can also, if you track it well and have a good idea of what you're eating, then it can also make no difference whatsoever and fit in very nicely. So for example, if you know you're going to be eating a bit more at that untracked meal, then probably lower your intake in the meals before. Make sure you get in your protein and your fruits and veggies still. And then just set yourself up well for that untracked meal. Don't just... So if you're going to a buffet or something or like a or a birthday dinner, then like wouldn't really make sense to be eating normally throughout the day. I would uh, vary your intake accordingly for that meal. Yeah, just plan ahead. But at the same time... If you do overeat a little bit, you know, just move on with life. Tomorrow is a new day. And like Jack said, if like 27 out of your 28 meals are to the T and accommodate your goals, you know, in the long term, especially because you mentioned in an off season, it's really not going to make that much of a difference. So Mm. it's all good. Each to their own. Again, it's going to be so highly individual. So if you guys have a coach or, you know, if anyone out there has a coach and they're in a situation like this, just speak to your coach, you know? Yeah. All right. So next question. So this one is by Sam and he asks, how many sets per week is optimal for, for growth per muscle group? So yeah, the the evidence at the moment indicates around 10 to 20 sets per week uh, from each muscle group. And obviously this will depend on the individual as per usual and what your weak points are, etc. what your intensity level is that you train at. So let's give an example. So John Smith, he trains very, very intensely and his weak points are his back and his shoulders. So because he trains very intensely, then we can probably assume that his weekly sets will have to be slightly lower because Uh, his recovery will be uh, impaired by his intensity level. So uh, let's start at the minimum 10 sets per week for each muscle group. And then we might raise up the back and shoulders to around 12 to 15 and see how he goes with that. Yeah, I would also take into account the size of the muscle group. So for example, some people might find that a smaller muscle group like their biceps or their deltoids, they might be able to handle higher volume and they might recover quicker so you could probably do upwards of you know 15 to 20 sets per week for your delts but 
a very, very large muscle group like the quads or the hamstrings, it might be closer to that 10 sets per week. So it really depends there. But again, everyone is different and everyone has different recovery capacities. Like I know that I could probably do upwards of 20 sets per week for my quads and they still don't really get sore. I just have very high recovery capacity. And that's not because I don't get good activation in my quads. I certainly do at the time and I really push myself in training, but they just have a very high recovery capacity. And yeah, more is not always better. So like there's no point, especially if you're a beginner to intermediate, there's no point starting on 20 sets for each muscle group because then you have nowhere to go in the future. Mm-hmm. So what do you do when you're an advanced trainee and you need to increase volume in order to grow? Like you can't go anywhere from that. So I would always recommend starting on the lower spectrum, reaping all the results you can from that lower volume and then increasing volume when you feel like you stall. And the reality is that you most people don't need... 20 sets per week for everything like i would stick between like 10 to 15 for the for your stronger body parts and maybe increase slightly for your weaker ones but yeah that's our take yeah i'd certainly say so and that really reinforces the importance of tracking your training and keeping a logbook or tracking things on excel or however you choose to do it because you do want to pay attention to these variables because you want to know just how much volume you're doing per week and then how you want to manipulate that for the week moving forward and i'd also just say if you feel like you can do upwards of 20 sets per week you might want to relook at the intensity at which you're training so the number of reps that you're completing and the weight for each of those reps because perhaps what you could do is lower your set volume and then perhaps increase the weight a little bit and push yourself a little bit harder so that you don't get to a fourth set and feel like you have the energy left to do eight kind of thing. Yes, and this also relates to a question by Xander who asks, thoughts on a low volume, high intensity training style versus keeping reps in reserve and accruing volume. So I think both of us will probably go for the latter option, which is keeping a few reps in reserve and accruing volume. So ultimately volume will be the is the king of hypertrophy and it'll be the most important aspect. However, if you do a heap of volume and don't train with any intensity, then you you won't get much growth. So there is a there is a balance between them. And usually we would recommend between you have to have a certain degree of intensity at a certain degree of volume to make progress. But it, that doesn't mean you have to train to failure for everything. So Even say on a squat, you can still do five reps in reserve for a squat and still um, promote muscle growth. So Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's some exercises like that where it's more of a mental battle than anything. I know for sure like something on hack squats, I know that I'm physically capable of getting to 10 reps or a lot of people could probably relate to this too on something like a leg press. Like you know that you can do 10 reps at a certain weight, but even when you reach rep five, it feels really, really damn hard. And it's almost, it's more just mentally pushing yourself there so that you can complete all of the reps. So you really got to give it and push it. And then on the topic of training while we're at it, we actually have another question and it says, can you please expand on what you mean by junk volume? So Jack, how would you define junk volume? So junk volume is again related to potentially doing too many sets in a workout and you get to an exercise and you are pretty mentally and physically fatigued by then and you don't basically don't maximize your capability and capacity to complete an effective exercise 
Yeah, I would say the exact same thing. So going well upwards of those 20 sets per week. And I'd say junk volume is basically something that it really isn't providing any extra stimulus, you know, and it's quite hard to track. You're probably not at a point in your training session because junk volume is usually completed at the end where you can actually give maximum intensity and really do as well and lift as heavy in that exercise compared to if you started off a bit fresher. So I guess an example for this would be something like junk volume for glutes. Let's say that you did a lower body day and you did a buttload of exercises that incorporated your glutes. So you did squats, you did hip thrusts, you did RDLs, you did lunges, you did hip abduction and cable kickbacks, right? And then you get to the very end of your session and you're like, I'm gonna do a hundred frog pumps supersetted with a hundred jump squats. <laughs> like that to me, that would be junk volume because your glutes at that point are already fatigued. They have already been maximally stimulated in a very strategic way through your programming. And then if you go in and do all these frog pumps and jump squats, you know, it's just adding to extra fatigue and it's really not providing any extra stimulus that you haven't already achieved. So that's probably just an example then. You could probably give other examples for exercises like shoulders, people who do a bunch of shoulder exercises when their shoulders have already been maximally stimulated during a push workout. Mm, yeah, 100%. So moving on to the next question by Ivan. He asks, injectable L-carnitine instead of oral for a natural competitor, pros, cons, ethics. This is really interesting because I've never actually heard of injecting L-carnitine. I've only obviously heard of it as the supplement. Mm. And I, I think the same principles occur for regular L-carnitine. So basically L-carnitine is marketed as a fat loss uh, supplement. And basically L-carnitine is important for shuttling fatty acids into the mitochondria to be used as fuel. So the theory is that if you have more L-carnitine, then you can shuttle more fatty acids in to the mitochondria, use them as fuel and burn more fat. However, this is why I think oral and injectable will be the same is because um, just because you supplement with more L-carnitine doesn't mean you'll be using more fatty acids. So it's a bit like hydrating with more water, like it won't do anything. You can only, you can't get more and more hydrated. Or like eating more and more protein, like just because you eat more protein doesn't mean that it's going to equate to bigger muscles. Mm. And the thing about L-carnitine is that our cells are actually already fully saturated with L-carnitine. Our body produces it all by itself from amino acids and our cells already have enough to shuttle the right amount of fatty acids into those cells to burn energy. So yeah, supplementing with more, it's not going to equate to greater fat loss. And we've spoken about this in one of our very early podcasts. And you know, like a lot of things, it's a really nice theory. And if you don't understand human physiology, you know, and someone explains this to you, it's very easy to believe. And I I've believed things like this before too, but that's why Jack and- Jira still has a packet of BCAAs at her house. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Back when I took BCAAs in 2015, that thing is like, oh my God. It's really moldy by Jesus, now. Jesus. Yeah. Moldy BCAAs. Yuck. That's before they used to flavor them. Oh, yuck. Anyway, <laughs> they're ancient BCAAs. We should put them in like a museum, like a sup museum or something. <laughs> 
But anyway, yeah, L-carnitine, no worries. Your body already makes it and there's no need to inject it. I just... It would make... If L-carnitine did actually work, it would probably make sense to inject it because... Uh, it would bypass the digestive system and like we know that in the stomach a lot of things don't always depart the stomach yeah especially because l-carnitine is made from amino acids it's a type of protein so if you were to ingest it then it is quite likely that hydrochloric acid and proteases and certain enzymes that break down protein structures into their individual amino acids that would likely influence the effectiveness of that supplement and you'd probably just absorb it as like dipeptides so it wouldn't even be l-carnitine anymore Mm. Okay, cool. Next question. So this is one is by Tanisha, and she asks, how to begin learning to pose? How do you begin? You just got to start. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely get, get yourself a good posing coach well out from your competition. Uh, and you, like the hardest part's just starting. But make sure that you take photos, please, on your very first posing session because even though they'll make you cringe later in life, they're hilarious and it's just really, really funny to look back on those and really see how much you've progressed and how far you've come. Yeah, and if you're in Australia with ICN, then definitely make sure to, and this goes for everyone, not just Tanisha, but make sure you go to the posing classes and definitely, like Tierra said, get a posing coach as well. And yeah, so I... Sometimes you can learn from YouTube videos and stuff, but it's quite hard to select um, particulars for the federation that you're in because they do vary quite a lot um, depending on like, are you with WMBF, ICN, IMBA and all those sorts of ones. Yeah, I would completely agree and really nail down the type of federation that you want to do because yeah, ICN is looking for different things compared to like ANB and AWNBS if you're a girl and then other federations if you're a guy too. And another thing on YouTube as well, even like IFBB posing, they pose differently in the US, in Europe, and in Australia, I've found. So like YouTube has been hardly any help for me at all with IFBB posing. I just really need to find a IFBB posing coach. And I'm actually really excited because I'm going to start posing with Unique Crew. They pose at World Gym every single Sunday morning. So I'm going to start posing with them, which is super exciting. Yeah, because I start prep in 26 days on the 31st of August. So not long left. So got to get my pose on. Yeah, damn, so freaking pumped. Okay. All right. So this next question comes from Zach Martin Fitness and it asks... Do you count trace protein into overall daily protein intake or just from protein sources? Now, I'm so glad that we got asked this question because you'll see a lot of people on social media and they'll say that they don't count trace macros. And I just want to make it like really emphasize that protein is protein and Foods, a food is not a macro, okay? You can't just say that chicken is a protein, all right? Or peanut butter is a fat, or potatoes are a carb, all right? Food is food. Food is not a macro. And even though one type of food might be predominant in a certain type of macronutrient, like for example, even though peanut butter might have quite a significant amount of fat in it, It also has protein in it. It also has carbohydrates in it and fiber in it and a bunch of different vitamins and minerals. So it's not just fat. And 
I, I really want to emphasize that every single macro within a certain food, it certainly does count. Otherwise, if you don't if you don't count those certain macronutrients, one, I don't even know how you do that on my fitness pal. It would just get really messy. You'd be spending hours doing math and also you'd be well exceeding your energy intake as well. So yeah, count everything, you know, like oatmeal, definitely please count the fats and count the protein and oats. It's not just carbs and, and they all count, you know, I, I want to hear your take on this too. So does that mean you do count trace protein? <laughs> yes, I do. Yes, we count trace protein. I'm sorry, I should have said that first. <laughs> so yeah, it it does make sense, especially when like a lot of my... So basically, we both try and get a certain amount of um, HPV protein, which is animal protein each meal. So for me, I try and get around 30 grams. And then from then the rest of that will basically come from mainly carbon fat sources. So like say if I had like this morning, I had oats for breakfast, I had yogurt for my HPV. And then obviously there's quite a bit of protein in the oats and the chia seeds and the ground flax meal that I also add in it. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Yeah. And that's still protein. There's still amino acids and those are still fully available for your body to absorb and use and integrate into new bodily proteins. So it, it all counts, guys. It all counts. And yeah, just stick to the basics and just in my fitness pal or whenever you're tracking food, just count the macronutrient from every single food. Don't try to exclude things because yeah, it just gets really messy. And I think you, I don't know, to actually work it out, I think you'd have to be a mathematician because I, I don't even know how you would like remove fats from oats and then like remove. You'd probably go off your meal plan. <laughs> yeah, you would definitely go off your meal plan. <laughs> And no, I'm, I mean, you would go off a meal plan, like you would use a meal plan. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> yeah. All right. Traces count. <laughs> so this next question is by Nikita, and she asks, approaching mini cuts for females in the off season, and then in brackets, say six to eight week intense mini cuts, question mark. Yeah, so same as males, I think that females definitely can do mini cuts and they can do cuts and... I think that they're perfectly great strategy to integrate into an improvement season for sure. You know, I just wrapped up one just over a month ago and it can really just set you up for having a really good starting point for your prep because you go through phases during an improvement season where you're continuously gaining weight, putting on muscle, but you will reach a point where you do have not a very high, but you know, uh, unproductive and unproductive. That's a nice word <laughs> An unproductive body fat percentage or an amount of body fat where your training performance is no longer increasing. And, you know, you might just feel quite uncomfortable in your body as well. And you have no desire to eat and your cardiovascular fitness might be down a little bit. So it's perfectly fine to integrate a dieting period like a cut or a mini cut for anywhere between four to eight weeks just to get rid of some body fat while maintaining your muscle mass and just being very strategic with your nutrient timing as well and your macronutrient split to make sure that you're not compromising exercise performance or your hard-earned muscle mass because certainly when you're at a higher body fat percentage, you aren't at a risk of losing muscle as long as you keep protein adequate, you're providing a resistance training stimulus, you're getting enough sleep, you know, you're covering all those bases. 
But yeah, uh, I'd say that just for guys, mini cuts are fine for girls. They're great. Yeah, and I'll just base it off the same percentages that you use for guys. So, for example, using losing around one to five point five percent of body weight each week, and so like obviously that doesn't mean you lose the same amount as a male because they're a much higher body weight. And yeah, so I would also approach a mini cut just like looking at the individual's like food focus and are they mentally in a position to approach a mini cut as well. So if they are still uh, like have some food focus and they really are thinking about food in between their meals, then I probably wouldn't do a mini cut. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of different factors that go into it, but yeah, definitely have discussion with your coach. All right, so next question is, how low do you keep your fats in a bulking phase? So, Jack, how low do you keep your fats? So, again, it'll depend on the individual and their, <laughs> and their circumstances. Like, for me, I keep my fats at around slightly under, like, maybe 0.9 grams per kilo of body weight. And the reason I keep mine, that I would say that's um, slightly high for a gaining phase. And the reason why that is is because I eat a lot of fiber and the fiber will interfere with the absorption of fatty acids. So that's, and I've noticed that if I go lower than uh, around 0.9, then I do start to feel the effects of lower fat intake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'd say for me, my fats are generally around 40 grams per day. And I just did a quick little calculation that comes out to be around 0.6 grams per kilogram. And that works really, really well for me. But I just want to emphasize that the lower your fat intake becomes, it's really, really essential to make sure that some of those fatty acids are coming from essential fatty acid sources. So you definitely want to be getting in enough omega-3s there. So having a like two serves of fatty fish per week is the recommendation, whether that's like salmon or sardines or also plant sources of omega-3. So if you have some chia seeds, some flax seeds, some walnuts. So that's really important. And also you're gonna get omega-6 through trace sources. So you don't necessarily need to go out of your way to make sure that you're getting omega-6. Omega-6 is generally found in a lot of vegetable oils and different nuts and seeds like macadamia nuts and walnuts too. So omega-6 is usually fine. And then for the rest of your fatty acids, try to definitely get in a good amount of unsaturated fats. So things like avocado and olive oil and olives. And then the rest just come from, you know, other sources of fat too. So like things like eggs and dairy. Oats. And oats. And oats. Oats have a good combination of unsaturated and saturated. It's all good. And yeah, the lowest you can bring your fats down to is actually 0.3 grams per kilo of body weight. But I wouldn't really recommend going that low. It's a bit... That's really in like the very deep end of a prep when just energy intake is very low and you're really, you don't want to take any more away from protein and you don't want to sacrifice exercise performance by taking any more away from carbohydrates. So yeah, 0.3, you can do it, but it's not sustainable. But short answer, somewhere probably between 0.6 to 1 gram per kilogram of body weight. Figure out what works best for you. So the next question is by Lawrence and he asks, I've heard people talk about how the body thinks calories are present in calorie-free drinks and sauces, etc., meaning the body will gain fat if these calories get too high. Any truth to it? All right, so this is certainly an interesting question and you know, I've Jack and I've heard this as well and you'll hear people say, especially for things like artificial sweeteners, people will be like, 
oh, it tricks your body into thinking that, you know, you're consuming sugar, so you're going to increase insulin production, even though that's not going to lead to extra fat gain anyway. But it is a receptor-mediated response. So when you consume something that has calories in it, so something, let's say, that you consumed uh, uh, some candies, right? And that's basically glucose. That glucose is going to go into your bloodstream, and then it's actually going to go into your pancreas. And the pancreas has a GLUT receptor called GLUT2, and this is non-insulin dependent, which means that glucose can go through that receptor without insulin. And then glucose goes into your pancreas, and through cell-mediated responses, it signals for insulin to actually be released because the pancreas identifies that, hey, blood glucose levels are quite high. We need to secrete insulin so that we can shuttle that glucose into cells. But again, that's only going to happen if blood glucose levels actually increase, and they can only increase if you eat something with carbohydrates in it and with overall calories in it. So if you're just eating something with artificial sweeteners and it doesn't actually have any calories in it, then no, that will not raise blood glucose levels and you won't store energy and that can't increase body fat levels. Mm. So yeah, something else that's worth mentioning in relation to this is cephalic digestion. So that basically occurs when you see or smell or taste a food and your stomach and your digestive tract begin secreting the relevant enzymes to digest and absorb. So essentially, say if you're chewing some sugar-free gum with artificial sweeteners, due to the taste and the salivation, you will produce um, those enzymes. But this won't really have an effect on uh, like ex- extra fat gain or anything like that. Yeah, exactly. And there's no issue with those enzymes being secreted. They're probably, I don't know what actually happens to them. Maybe they're reabsorbed or maybe they just continue along the digestive tract or maybe they get broken down. It's a mystery that I'd have to ask our um, physiology teacher. (laughs) Okay, so we're going to answer another question. So this one says, binge eating during prep. What can I do to overcome it? Extra cardio, extra weight sessions? So yeah, my first recommendation would be probably to stop prep and seek the advice from a nutrition professional, so a dietitian who specializes in um, binge eating disorders. And so just because you are binge eating doesn't mean you have an eating disorder. could just be disordered eating at the moment, but it can evolve into an eating disorder. So the reason why I would stop prep is because prep is probably enforcing those habits and causing you to binge eat when you really need to focus on strategies to overcome your disordered eating currently and it's it's really not a good spot to be in so yeah I I honestly I couldn't agree more you know the stage is always going to be there but uh, like doing something like this and being in that type of mental state I think that needs to be treated as a top priority and you know you can if you want to return to bodybuilding one day in a more sustainable way then you always can but this really needs to be dealt with first I think it's Yeah, it's very, very important. And I also just want to emphasize, because you said, how do I overcome it? Extra cardio or extra weight sessions. I think that also reinforces the importance of why this just might not be the right time for you to be prepping. Because again, it's really not a good mindset to be in to try to compensate for overeating and eating a very large amount of food 
by doing more exercise because that's probably just going to reinforce that maybe it's okay or that might be how you can deal with it in a way because, you know, when you get those urgencies and you want to binge, you know, you can kind of convince yourself that, oh, maybe it's okay if I give in because I can just, you know, spend an extra two hours on the treadmill or I'll just do twice the amount of volume in my weight session. So unfortunately, that's a very unhealthy way to compensate. And I'm really saying that because I've been there before too. I was there for a number of years and I was just incredibly mentally unstable and it was a very, very unhealthy mindset to be in because I would overeat and I would compensate by doing an enormous amount of exercise. So yeah, really seek a health professional. And I just want to say that, you know, binge eating, it's so freaking tough. Like the way that I would describe it is that, you know, you don't, you don't want to give in, right? You have these urgencies and it almost feels like you're, you're hanging off the side of a cliff by your fingertips, you know, and you, you don't want to let go. You don't want to give in, but you know that you, you just, your mind overtakes you and you don't feel strong enough and you keep slipping and you just don't have the strength. And then eventually, you know, you just give in to those urgencies and you give in to those cravings and you slip off the cliff and you fall and you just feel so vulnerable. It's just, it's, it's, it's awful. And you just go into a whirlwind of, you're not even thinking rationally, you know, like I've been there too. And I don't even know, I, this is just all coming out, but like, you'll just go into the kitchen and you will just eat anything. You'll just open up the pantry and just like get a tub of Milo and a spoon and just start eating raw Milo, or you'll pull cold cheese out of the fridge and you just, you feel out of control and you have a lack of control. It's, it's awful. All right. And if you ever feel like that, just try to catch your breath, try to remove yourself from the situation, try to find a loved one who you can really speak to about how you're feeling and you really need to get to the root cause of why you're feeling like that. So yeah, treat this as a top priority. Okay, all right, so these next questions are from Anvir. There are two and I'm just gonna combine them. So the first one says, when bulking and all macros are already pretty high, how do you decide what to increase? And the second one is, if it's hard for me to bulk and I have an adaptive metabolism, will it be hard for me to prep? All right, so this very first one, when she's bulking, macros are high, what sh- which like macronutrients should she focus on increasing? Uh, carbohydrates, essentially. And yeah, I guess saying your macros are high is going to be subjective as well. So uh somewhat macros which are high for someone will not be high for someone else so the importance i guess when it comes to fitting in more carbohydrates go for the carbohydrate dense options which won't fill you up as much and yeah that's pretty much it really yeah i completely agree i'd say as long as your protein is adequate around two grams per kilogram fat again is between 0.6 to one gram like we spoke about before then increase for carbohydrates because that's going to equate to more energy throughout the day and also better exercise performance and better recovery too. And damn, carbohydrate foods arguably are some of the best foods, so enjoy it. And then the next one 
if it's hard for me to bulk and you have an adaptive metabolism, will it be hard for you in a prep? Now, this is actually very interesting because it's, again, it's going to be so highly individual because there are some people who have adaptive metabolisms, but they'll go either way. You know, their body really likes being at a certain body weight and has a certain set point. And when you try to deviate away from that, it will fight back either way. So let's say that a girl was 65 kilograms, right? And her body really liked being at 65 kilograms and she tried to gain weight. And, you know, she was exercising regularly in the gym. She was trying to increase her food, but her body just didn't want to budge. It felt comfortable at 65. It doesn't want to be any heavier. It will fight back and it will try to increase neat activity. So it's going to automatically make you move more during the day and you're just going to want to fidget more. You're going to be more inclined to do things like clean the house and go for walks and move around and you're going to have more energy when you talk. Like you would clean the house. That'd be nice. That's not very nice. We're in your house right now. I'm not cleaning your house. <laughs> anyway, you're going to have uh, more energy to just move throughout the day, right? But then on the flip side, what can happen is that when you want to lose weight, your body's like, no, 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 no. I want to stay at 65. So even if you reduce your calories, your body's going to fight back by be more still when you're sitting down or you're going to be less inclined to do those little things like clean and go for walks. And when you're in the gym, instead of standing up and, you know, bouncing around and moving to your music, you're just going to keep sitting on machines. Your body will go to great lengths to try to make you conserve energy. So yeah, you might really be surprised by how far you have to push your calories up during a gaining phase to really, really push homeostasis and gain weight. And unfortunately, especially for some girls, you might be surprised by how low your calories have to get during a prep in order to actually lose weight. But I think that also reinforces the importance of tracking NEAT and being aware. So Jack and I are always tracking step counts with our clients. Yeah, I completely agree. And there is such a wide diversity for uh, individuals who like they how high they have to go and how, how low they have to go as well. So for like my uh, friend and coach Alan, so he was he actually showed me this really cool notes page on his phone where he basically tracked all of his clients and how much activity they had to do and how low their calories had to go in in um, calories per kilo. And yeah, it was like I think goes to show for him how great of a coach he is that. Uh, like he managed to um, basically have all of his clients on relatively high calories per um, kilo. And obviously that will, the majority of that will come down to genetics, but a lot of it will also come down to coaching practices as well. Yeah, for sure. And it also reinforces that sometimes as a coach, you might be surprised, you know, you'll be like, man, my client was eating like 4,000 calories a day and they're like, we were really pushing and their weight was hardly budging up. Now they're on 2,500 calories a day and they're not even losing, you know? So either way, and it, it kind of shows that you can't always go off those, you know, if you put yourself in a 500 calorie deficit, you will lose half a kilogram per week. Like it's not A equals B, you know? Sometimes just the alphabet is whack and it goes all over the place. <laughs> okay. 
All right, so I think that we're gonna have to wrap it up here, but we will finish on our very last question of the day, and that is one thing that we learned this week. So, Jack, take the floor. <laughs> so, I was listening to the Stronger by Science podcast, which I just started listening to, and it's it's really good. And it's Jack's type of humor, sarcasm. Mm. <laughs> And yeah, so essentially something I learned was in re- in regards to drug testing and how much that has evolved within the last 10 years or so. And essentially, I, I believe it was for the Olympics, the weightlifting um, portion of the Olympics. And because whenever they do a drug test, they actually um, freeze the urine. So because they dis- uh, they've uh, made produced more methods to advance drug testing, they actually tested the urine from uh, however many years ago, like I think uh, yeah, around they, they, 10 years ago. Yeah, they keep it for like 10 years. Yeah. And they actually caught like an, like the the top some of the top three placings for the weightlifting Olympics and they had to disqualify those people and people who came fourth and fifth ended up coming second and third from the Olympics like 10 years ago, which Mm -hmm. is pretty crazy, I think. Yeah, and you know, you'll hear people say that, you know, you can cheat a drug test, but damn, those scientists and those chemists, they're freaking smart these days. And I think (laughs) those those damn scientists (laughs) doing their science... (laughs) But I think they even mentioned in that podcast that like one of the Russian teams, they couldn't think of anything other than to, they like, when they were peeing in their cups in the cubicles, the only way that they try, they could cheat is by passing urine samples through holes in the wall. Did Mm. you hear that? Yeah, I did. Pretty crazy. Yeah. So in Russians are smart, man. There's a lot of (laughs) Russian NASA scientists over there. So... (laughs) (laughs) anyway it just kind of goes to show that um if you just don't cheat bro yeah don't cheat man okay um so one thing that i learned this week so you'll often hear people say you know time is money right so don't waste your time because you could be earning money but this week i really learned that money is also time and Even if you are in a job and you're making money, sometimes you are spending your time and you're spending your life doing something that you're not necessarily satisfied with and it's you're not accomplishing much and you're not very happy. And the reason why I say that is because this week I actually resigned from UQ Sport, which is pretty crazy. I did not expect to. I I resigned on Friday night. And I did not expect to resign when I woke up on Friday morning. It just, it really, really hit me. And the reason why I resigned is because, you know, I'm a dietitian now and I just no longer felt satisfied working on a gym floor anymore as a personal trainer. You know, my qualifications are much higher than a personal trainer now. And I didn't feel satisfied working in the gym and selling memberships anymore. And, you know, Every time I was at the desk, I would get people come to me. It's the usual questions that I like I've been getting for years, you know, like, what are you studying? And I'd be like, oh, you know, I actually graduated two weeks ago as a dietitian. And they kind of give me this look and this eyebrow and they'd be like, you're a dietitian. Why are you still working at a gym? And, uh, you know, I'd be like, oh, you know, like, well, my boyfriend and I, we've started our own business. And what I'm doing is I'm just doing a few hours here per week. And I'm trying to just have a base income until, you know, my partner and I, we have enough clients to be self-sustainable and then I'll move on, 
right? But I had to be honest with myself because I wasn't just working there a few hours a week. I was working there like six days a week and most of my shifts were like eight hours long. And even though I was... 11 p.m. Yeah, and my sleep schedule was whack. You know, I was getting up at like 4.45 in the morning to open some days. I was there until like 11, 11.30 at night, just getting home really late. I'd always get enough sleep, but I never had a, a sleep routine. And I just had to be honest with myself because like even though I was spending time there and I was earning money, it was taking away time from what I actually was passionate about, you know? I wasn't able to spend as much time with Jack and I wasn't able to put in all the hours that I wanted to to our business, you know, to really excel and to take on more clients and really actually do what I'm passionate about. I didn't even have time to call my parents during the day or get enough sleep or actually train when I wanted to train. It was just, it was taking away from lots of parts of my life. So I just, I cut it off, you know, I, (laughs) it was, it's awesome. And I, I feel really, really good about it. And it was a very hard decision to make because, you know, I've been training there and working there for a total of four and a half years now, ever since I started uni. So yeah. And I, I love UQ, you know, I've made so many great friends there. The coworkers are amazing. It was such a great atmosphere and it was such an amazing job to have while I was at uni. But now that I've graduated, this is really a transition period for me. And it really, really is time to move on. And damn, I'm just so freaking excited. I'm so happy because now I can just, I can work for myself, you know, and I can do everything on my own terms and on my, at my own time, you know, and I can, before I was probably only giving like one fifth of the effort that I actually could to Jack and I's business. Now I can give a hundred percent of my time to Jack and to our business and really, really help it grow and really do what I'm passionate about. And ah, I just feel like a huge weight's been lifted on my off my shoulders. And I feel like this was a really, really good decision for me. It took a hell of a lot of courage, but it was just, it's time. I'm just, you know, entering a new chapter of my life now. But yeah, I guess I just want to say to anyone, you know, if you are in a situation where you feel unsatisfied or you feel like you could be accomplishing more during your work and you know that there's another option, freaking take it. Like this is your life. Just freaking go for it. Go for it. Ah, all right. So yeah, that's what I learned this week is that money is time. All right, so I guess that wraps up the end of our 33rd episode. So thanks for listening, guys. And if you enjoyed the episode, please remember to screenshot it and post it to your Instagram story. You can also listen on Spotify now. Remember to tag myself, tag Tierra, tag the Bodybuilding Dietitians, and we'll see you next week. See you later.